This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the internet, the place the pandemic drove so much of our work and social lives. But today's conversation isn't about our collective retreat into the internet. It's about what we've lost to the internet in the last few decades and how that loss has changed us. Right up front, let me say, today's guest does not hate the internet. She sees her work as documenting recent history that younger generations of millennials and Gen Zers may barely remember, if they recall it at all. At the same time, older generation baby boomers spent most of their lives living this history. As a Gen Xer herself, Pamela Paul falls in the middle. There was no internet the first decades of her life, but as is the case with just about everyone, the internet has become central to her life, including in 2022, where she is a New York Times opinion columnist and author of the book 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Not every loss in her book is something that has completely disappeared. Some have just changed radically. Talking with Pamela is Knut Berger, editor-at-large at Crosscut and host of Mossbacks Northwest on KCTS 9. He is a baby boomer still taking notes by hand in a trusty reporter's notebook, but he'll also tell you that he's become quite attached to his laptop. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Pamela Paul, welcome to you. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, even if it's on the internet and not in person. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, So one thing I wanted to ask you just at the start about your book is, do you have a beef with the internet? Does anybody not have at least one beef with the internet? I don't know. Um, You know, there are things that I love about the internet. Um, I love the fact that it is now kind of holding up um, my very uh, feeble, my increasingly feeble memory so that I can, you know, um, Google anything and and find out immediately the answer. Um, Although I do think there are downsides to that. And certainly, I think anyone at this point in the pandemic will recognize that this pandemic, particularly the lockdown phases, would have been completely, if not impossible, a lot less um, sustainable for most people um, without the internet. I mean, we would not have been able to communicate with one another in many cases. We wouldn't have been able to access health information. For those of us who were lucky enough to be able to work remotely, we could continue to earn a paycheck. Um, So the internet did a lot of good during the pandemic. I do think, though, that the pandemic also showed us that being on the internet a lot, a lot, a lot has a real downside. Well, many of the things that you uh, cite in your book as lost seem to me like they're still with us. For example, vinyl LPs seem seem to have made a a comeback. Craigslist didn't kill antique malls, killed newspapers, uh, (laughs) but didn't kill antique malls and estate sales. So when you say lost, what do you really mean? 
So I think that I use that term loosely. You're right. And some of the things are completely gone. Um, but a lot of them have just been radically changed um, or we have kind of forgotten about them. And what I wanted to do with this book is not just catalog them, but also kind of document them, point them out so that people could remember like, oh, yeah, I could listen to a record if I wanted to. Um, we do have a choice, for example, to leave our phone at home and actually take a real vacation. Although I have yet to meet anyone who has done that unless yeah. it was some kind of like enforced retreat. Um, we do have the ability to claw back some of the things that the internet has taken away from us. So um, they're definitely not all pure, you know, erased from the planet losses. Well, maybe you could uh, just give us a, a quick list of the sort of biggest losses, that your top loss losses list. Uh, the ones that I take personally, you mean? Or, <laughs> sure. the ones well, that... it could be both. Yeah. I mean, the ones that are, part of this is that, Every loss is different for every person, right? Um, and certainly I'm not going to claim to speak for all of humanity. Sometimes something that feels like a loss, like a negative loss, is actually a positive loss or a kind of gain, depending on where you are at, at a given moment. Or for a different person, something is, is a loss and for someone else is a gain. So for me, for example, I am not a fan of the tablet. I do not use an e-reader. I know a lot of people do. Um, so I talk a little bit about what you lose when you read things on a tablet than if you read them in what I still think of as like, you know, a real book. Um, but uh, for someone who is autistic or on the spectrum um, or for someone who has um, any kind of reading disability for, you know, a lot of people reading on a tablet for someone, frankly, who just needs to zoom in and see things in large print. Um, there's a real benefit to reading on a tablet. So I'm, you know, cognizant of the fact that things that are losses for me are sometimes gains for other people. Um, but the ones that I take personally here that really feel um, like significant losses to me um, are the ones that are not so much physical objects, although there are lots of print paper-based things that I really miss, um, but they're the kind of bigger idea thing. So I really miss being able to focus on one thing at a time. I really miss my attention span. Um, I, I, I will try to maintain, uh, be sustained um, during the course of this conversation. But I do think that the internet and um, particularly the phone or portable internet um, uh, has you know, destroyed our sense of concentration. I, I miss the feeling that, you know, if I woke up in a hotel uh, in Copenhagen by myself, that's just where I am. I'm right there. No one else is there with me. Um, but you really lose that sense when you have a phone and you have, you know, what can feel like and, and really be like a thousand people or at least hundreds of people knocking at your door with their emails, their, you know, upvotes, their notifications, their posts, their texts, sort of everyone there lurking. You lose that feeling of like, I am just here right now in the now. Um, not being as in person, uh, that's not a natural state for me unless it's the only available state. So that's one I miss. Um, another one that I miss is being being able to um, disappear on the planet. And, and, and this is a little bit related um, to attention span, um, but 
when I was in my early 20s, I moved abroad to a small city in northern Thailand, and it was pre-internet, or, you know, I think Al Gore was on the internet, but not many other people. Um, and um, I didn't even have um, a landline, let alone a cell phone or a portable uh, internet, as they are, I think, really are. Um, and so no one could reach me. And I could go traveling, for example, backpacking in China for six weeks without being able to contact anyone. I didn't even have a phone card. Um, and that's gone. And I think that for, you know, in my life right now, I'm not exactly going to, you know, run off to, um, uh, you know, the highlands of, of Bolivia for three weeks or, or let alone, you know, for a year. But I think for young people, that ability to go somewhere and really be unconnected from other people is a, is a loss because it's the kind of experience um, it's really hard to simulate, even if you don't bring your little portable, you know, internet, um, because you know that there are internet cafes, you know that there are ways to access other people, to communicate, to get information. You won't find yourself, you know, alone and broke in a cafe in Hanoi with no money um, and sort of have to think on your feet, like where and how am I going to get by for the next 24 hours? And I think you learn something through that. Like, I'm not saying it's 100% fun, um, but I think it's a valuable experience to have. Yeah. Well, when as you were, I had a couple of reactions as you were talking. One was, um, you know, doom scrolling, um, which is something. I mean, I never used to wake up in the middle of the night and and go dig out the newspaper from recycling and read through it to see what was wrong with the world. Uh, but but certainly in the pandemic era and even before, waking up multiple times in the middle of the night to to see what kind of the latest fiasco was is is something i've done which says is to your point about the the changing the nature of the way we get information and the way we read and 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 process stuff um you know i'm i'm curious as to you you identify in the book i think as a gen xer am i right yes and and i'm a baby boomer and i have two millennial kids uh, who are middle-aged now. <laughs> and uh, I I'm wondering what you see, uh, are there differences between the generations in terms of their what they've lost or the perceptions of what they've lost? Like, you know, uh, what do you, what does your generation, you know, feel about these losses? And, and, and what about the, the millennials? Well, I'm Gen X, so I feel like we are just predisposed um, to feel uh, the most sort of um, burnt by anything <laughs> and the most depressed about it. Um, but I do think that uh, we are sort of situated at an interesting point. I mean, boomers too, but um, Gen Xers essentially, um, you know, and again, we're talking like born between 1964 and 1978, technically speaking, and some people dated a little bit differently. Um, but we all, encountered the internet for the first time as young adults. So we came of age without it. We worked for a while without it. And then we had it. And we were there for internet 1.0 and 2.0. And now I don't know where we are, 3.0 and beyond. Um, and I think that that experience certainly defines my way of looking at the internet and that I know that it's possible to get by without it. I remember what it was like in the before times. I have appreciated the growth and what it's done all along. Um, I think that for millennials, um, it's different in that um, most of them 
do remember the, the, the before times. Gen Z is a little bit different. Um, but millennials remember the before times. They got through, in most cases, their adolescence without social media. And they're old enough to recognize and be grateful for that. Um, and yet their young adulthood has been defined by the internet. And I think the digital generation, the digital natives, Gen Z, I think for them, it's been incredibly difficult because all they can do. And in a way I thought like, this is my little, like, you know, recent history book that I'm writing for them so that they know what it was like. I think that they're nostalgic for the before times. I think that they are suffering this period of change in which there's been a lot of technological change, but we haven't quite acclimated. We haven't quite adjusted to how do we function here? How do we reclaim things like, you know, democracy and privacy and civil discourse, all of those things that the internet has kind of swiped from existence. Um, and I think boomers, I don't know, you tell me how you feel. <laughs> um, I think it's it, it's probably maybe you have a little bit more perspective, and so uh, you feel sort of maybe a little bit less personally aggrieved. Well, I, I, for for me, the transition was difficult. I was a a PC resistor. Uh, I didn't want to give up my royal typewriter. Uh, you know, when I tell people that now, they're like, "Wow, you you were." in this business when there were still typewriters and people smoking in newsrooms? Yes, I was. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I adapted. Now you would have to pry my laptop from my cold, dead hands. Um, and, uh, you know, the phone thing is interesting. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, digital natives, Gen Z. And when my granddaughter was four years old, she picked up my phone and found games and things on it that I had no idea were there because I, I never explored my phone. You know, I was just like di dialing with my finger. And uh, you, you mentioned something kind of interesting that's a very specific thing that also you generalized from that. You said that the pro progress had doomed the kitchen telephone. And... Uh, one of the things you cite is lost. I mean, we have these iPhones that do more than like an IBM computer from the 60s could do, uh, including video and everything else. What was it about the kitchen phone specifically that seemed like a terrible loss to you? Well, it's a real change in that the phone in the kitchen was, first of all, you know, if many houses for a long time or apartments only had the phone in the kitchen, like that was the sort of, you know, where the, the Brady Bunch had their phone or the, the phone was in, in Meet Me in St. Louis. It was in the, in the dining room. Um, and that was a kind of portal to get into the house without walking through the front door, right? That was essentially, unless you climbed in through a window, that was the only way that someone who didn't live in the house or wasn't in the house could come in was through that phone. And when it was in a communal space, everyone knew if someone was coming in. And even if you didn't have the exact information, you gleaned a lot from it. So let's say you're all at the dinner table and the phone rings and uh, you are allowed to get the phone because you may remember, you know, it used to be considered incredibly rude to call during dinner time. Um, and you were in many families, at least, it was verboten to pick the phone up during, you know, during dinner time. Uh, but let's say you did, 
everyone at the table can hear that conversation and they're gathering information. Um, if, it, if the phone is for whoever picked it up, then they know like, oh my God, my big sister, she's having this conversation. She's whispering, she's keeping it quiet. Who could it be? Um, you could interrogate her after, if you were the parent, you could interrogate uh, the girl about who she was on the phone with, who dared call during that time. You would find out who your kid was in a communication with, or if you answered the phone and it wasn't for you, or if you answered the phone and it wasn't for you and someone picked it up in another room and you just went like this and listened in. Um, you knew who was being you know, communicating in a house. And now parents have no idea who their kids are communicating with. There is no, no one's, you know, the, the phone in the kitchen, no one would call in the landline if you even have a landline. They're not even calling because kids don't call. They're FaceTiming or they're texting or they're snapping or whatever they're doing. And they're doing it in their own bedroom or they're doing it under the table while you're at dinner because only 28% of Americans have a no phone at the table rule. Um, and so you're not privy to that. And what it what it does is kind of atomize um, the family or, or whoever it is that you're living together with and that everyone is communicating with people outside the house without anyone in the house really knowing. And that's a huge change. If you just kind of sit on that idea and you remember, oh, this is how it used to be. It used to be that everybody was in each other's business all the time. Now everything happens behind, you know, a screen and, and the rest of the family doesn't have access to it. Yeah, I, I just was thinking the only time you hear people overhear people talking on the phone is somebody on the bus who's loudly talking into their totally. cell phone, a private conversation you'd rather not hear. Right. Or yelling down the street. I mean, even just yeah. think about that. If someone used to walk down the street yelling to themselves, you were like, oh, this person has a serious, you know, um, you know, mental illness or something awry. Now it's completely normal to see people walking down the street alone yelling um, and uh, and really having kind of no self-consciousness about that. So it's it's really transform our, our ideas of what is kind of normal behavior out there um, in the open. And I want to go back to one thing you said um, about doom scrolling, um, because one of the chapters, one of the things that we've lost, um, each chapter kind of is a thing, and sometimes it's 10 things um, within the, the, the confines of, of the chapter title. Um, but one of the things is, of course, a good night's sleep. And you lose that not only because a lot of people sleep with their phone next to them um, in bed or under their pillow. The majority of teenagers sleep with their phone in their bedroom, and most of them within an arm's reach. So not only that, which is just stimulating because you kind of know that it's there. Um, but you wake up in the middle of the night as maybe older people are prone to do. And of course, what do you do? You look at the phone. Um, it's easier than turning on the light, potentially waking up your partner um, and reading a book. And besides, you know, not that many people, not as many people do that anymore. Um, but so you can disturb your, your sleep that way. But the other more insidious way that I think we've lost a good night's sleep gets back to this idea of there's been a huge wave of change and our bodies and brains have not caught up to it. So, you know, remember how everyone used to have that statistic of, and I'm going to get it wrong because I'm going to just completely um, paraphrase it. But there was some statistic like in the 19th century, you know, you got as much information over the course of a year as you would in a single day's edition of a print newspaper. Um, and now, of course, on the Internet, you can take whatever was in that print newspaper and multiply it by, you know, 
exponentially. We are going through, we're not just getting so much information in a day, but I think more importantly, we are absorbing emotional experiences. We're having a kind of, you know, constant influx of emotional engagements with the outside world, whether it's a tweet that really pisses you off or, you know, reading about something on Facebook that happened to a kid you, you know, went to elementary school, was hit by a car, or, you know, you're just sort of constantly gathering not just what's going on to the people that you know, but to everyone that they know through all these social networks. And it's at the end of the day, it's like you may have experienced five deaths within your network. You may have gotten in, you know, really upset about 10 different things. And I don't think that our bodies or our minds have caught up with how do you process all of that? It's a lot to take in in one day. And I think it's not surprising that so many people feel really amped up at the end of the day that so many teenagers feel really anxious and depressed and worried at the end of the day um, because we've just taken all this stuff in. It's almost too much for a given 16-hour period. It's interesting because if, if we as a society are sort of suffering from collective trauma, we're kind of compounding it with the phenomenon that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, look, the world is like pretty terrible <laughs> um, enough as it is, If even if you just take one thing like climate change. Um, but then if you add on to climate change, right, just the existence of that fact that we are all aware of, you could go online and you could see, you know, 10, 20, 50 different videos of it. You could, you know, see, look at climate deniers online and get enraged over that. Um, you, there's just a lot of different ways in which you can engage with that information intellectually and psychologically, emotionally. And it's really hard come 10 or 11 p.m. or whenever you try to go to sleep to just turn all that off and say like, okay, you know, I'm going to just zen out now and peacefully drift off. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about the media in, in general. Um, you know, I I spent a lot of time doing research in uh, newspaper archives and reading, you know, pioneer newspapers and early 20th century newspapers. And all the news was bad then. I mean, the, the amount of, of bad, terrible news that was packed into the newspapers in, say, 1918 <laughs> was every bit as much as now, maybe even more. Um, but somehow reading it in newsprint doesn't have the same effect, or I don't think had the same effect on people as the, what you're describing now. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, as somebody in the newspaper business, what, what's your sense of the state of newspapers and how the internet has changed things? Um, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs both ways? What, what do you um, think? I I think thumbs both ways. And I just want to expand on your point for one moment. Um, there was a period where everyone, I don't know, it was like five or 10 years ago, or, or it wasn't 10 years ago, it was maybe about five years ago that everyone was like, oh my God, we're using our you know, phone slash portable internet too much. What can we do to decrease our addiction to these devices? And someone said, oh, turn it to black and white and you'll find it a lot less fun. And so many people did, they turned it to black and white and they were like, this sucks. 
this is really boring. Um, it was not as engaging. It was not as exciting. It was not as fun. It was so much less fun that I think that most people who did that experiment said, I don't care. I'd rather just go back to the fun, happy, full color world of my old, you know, digital device than um, be less engaged with this black and white version. And I think that, again, um, emphasizes what you were talking about. It's when you have this, like, essentially, it feels like a piece of candy of a technology, the iPhone, I'm thinking of specifically, although I imagine it's true for an Android. Um, it just makes everything that much more compelling. Um, you, you know, the, the, the news is not simple black and white text on a grayish, you know, a uh, bit of, of, of poor recycled paper, um, but it is, or poor quality recycled paper. Um, it is, you know, fully colorful sound, video, um, graphics. I mean, we make the news really fun and engaging. Um, and so I think, to then answer your, your question, that's for the good and for the bad, right? Because what is fun and engaging um, isn't necessarily the most important thing for you to know. Um, and I, I, I mean, I could answer this question for like 10 hours. So I'll, I'll try to... Um, I'll try to stick to books for a moment. Um, I think that there are there are positives to books, and I'll talk a little bit about those. So one thing that we were able to do at the New York Times is to add um, the ability to buy the book online through your local independent or through an online retailer. Um, we weren't able to do a library function, although that'd be very cool, but you can easily go to another tab and do that. And that would have been a lot harder if you were just reading a print book review, for example. It's then you know another step to get up, get in the car, go get the book, or even get up, go online, order the book, or go to the library. Um, we were we are able to offer um, excerpts, first chapter excerpts, so that you could be reading a review of a book and then click over and read an excerpt. Again, something that you would not have been able to do if you were just reading that book review in print. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that you can do with the news. And, and the other thing I want to say is like that, you know, print is a finite space. Um, and we all, you know, all the news that's fit to print, you can fit a lot beyond that when you're not, um, you know, sort of prescribed by these, the, the trim size of a broadsheet newspaper or a tabloid size book review. So we are able to do a lot of things online with our books coverage that we just couldn't fit into the book review. Um, so it really expands your idea. And then when you add things like audio and video, I mean, being able to create an audio version of any news story is huge for people who, um, you know, have uh, or are blind or have difficulty reading. Um, it's good for people on the go. So I think that there are a lot of pluses and I'm just going to stick with the pluses so that I'm, so that people know that I'm not an entirely depressing anti-internet person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think folks reading your book wouldn't really get that impression, uh, cause there's a lot of nuance and humor. Um, but, but on that same topic, there was a recent piece in the Atlantic with, oh yeah, uh, about, Knight? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and, <laughs> I just had to bring you because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I want to get your response to that because essentially it, it, he makes the case that, that our democracy is threatened in part by this shift in social media from 
the early 2000s, and he pegs it to, a, I think, about 2011 to 2015. And it sort of, sort of tracks the, the sort of insidious nature of liking and sharing on Twitter and Facebook, which essentially turned informed tweets and Facebook posts to uh, amygdala pounding, um, uh, you know, hitting your fear and, and, and turned it into sort of performance art to get the most clicks. That virality, if that's a word, um, really is, uh, has had some bad consequences. And I'm wondering um, what you think about the, the sort of threat to, to virality and the role social media may have played in that. Um, so two things. One is, uh, I absolutely agree with everything that Jonathan Haidt said in that piece. Um, I think uh, I think maybe where I differ most is in terms of thinking about what potentially could be solution, although I, th- I, I agree with some of his solutions. I think maybe they don't all go far enough. Um, and it's interesting when I was thinking about this book um, and conceiving it, a lot of me, a lot of it came from um, a real uh, serious, intellectual and emotional response to the internet and what it hath wrought upon all of us and our world and me kind of shaking my old man fist at the sky and saying, you know, just being incredibly angry and upset over it. And what I decided to do was I wasn't going to write that book uh, because many people have written that book and Jonathan Haidt's piece in the Atlantic is being turned into a book. And I, and I think there were a lot of people kind of doing that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to Go back from the anger and the, you know, what does this mean for the future? And I'm going to rewind and then look at what it was that we had before in this book and kind of stay there and sort of try to remember because one of the, the, the good slash insidious things about the Internet is that it's very quickly habit forming. And so we sort of forget. We've forgotten a lot of this pre-internet stuff. And I almost just wanted to dredge it up to be like, wait a minute. Remember this stuff? Like, remember typewriters? Um so, so the goal in the, in the book was very different from that. But if you want me to rant about um, the world that we are currently in, <laughs> um, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I just did uh, as one of my first columns for the Times as a, as a columnist, a piece about leaving Twitter. Um, and um, when I was working on that, that uh, column, a friend of mine who's also a journalist said, like, don't write that column. Everyone writes that column. That column has been written. And what everybody says is like, you know, Twitter is terrible. We're all terrible on it. Um, and and therefore I left because it's toxic. And I, in my piece, wrote, I'm leaving because I'm terrible on it. Um, I'm terrible on this platform. It's bringing out the worst in me. And I think in Jonathan Haidt's piece, one of the recommendations that he has is everybody should just as an individual, it only will work if we all kind of do this individually, um, is uh, cut back on your internet use or your social media use, specifically about 80%. Um, The other thing, and just to tie this to your question about journalism, that I think is important about disengaging from social media is that, you know, I think that the statistic of the number of Americans who use Twitter at all is something like 28%. Um, It's 20 something. Um, and there are, you know, most of those people use it relatively casually. They're not even hardcore users. It doesn't represent our country or our world, the people who are on there. And so I think that for journalists, it's particularly treacherous to be on there because it gives you a very skewed opinion about what the world 
is like and what people are thinking about and what people actually feel. And again, then going back to, to, to my column, if it brings out the worst in us, then it's really, it's the worst of the 28%, 28% of people that is on Twitter. Yeah, and to Jonathan Haidt's point, you know, one of the things he talked about in his piece is that the voices that are amplified on Twitter are the voices at the margins of both the very far left and the very far right to our detriment. And it gives us a, a skewed perception of what people's interests, ideas, beliefs, convictions are actually like. So therefore, if you are a journalist and you are trying to gather information about the world and understand it and translate it to an audience, and you're doing that on Twitter, then you're probably not getting a very accurate picture. Um, let me just uh, insert a reminder here uh, for all of you on your best behavior. Um, those of you watching at home, we're going to be a um, asking some of your questions in just a few minutes. So be sure to enter them in the chat section and we'll try to get to them. Um, as a historian, I'm interested in digital records and a lot of institutions are putting their collections online, which was a godsend during the pandemic. But what are the dangers of losing these, you know, card catalogs and filing systems, things that you talk about in your book? Um, you know, is, is our history going to be kind of a big blank because <laughs> we, we didn't keep physical objects? I think there's a value to both. I do think we lose something when we don't have the physical object. I mean, I remember, you know, doing research when I was in college and going, um, my college had a, um, a, a, a library of early Americana and looking at um, old documents, old flyers, things that ran in circulars, um, pieces of, you know, all this sort of paper ephemera. Um, it really, it makes it real in a way that seeing all these things on screen is literally flattening, right? You're, you're just seeing it in this sort of two-dimensional way. It, you don't have that same um, visual, tactile, sensory experience when you, when you don't have the physical object. And I think for many people, I think, you know, when you, when you talk about different ways of learning and different kinds of intelligence, all of us recognize that some of us are kinetic learners. Some of us need to kind of feel, move, um, be active, be in a space with something. Um, so many of us are visual learners. Um, we're, 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 we're tactile learners. We need to feel something. Um, you can. We all know this by um, the direction that museums are going in, which is interactive, like having us be sort of fully experiential. Um, and so... We are taking that away, though, simultaneously from these ob these objects from our history and that, um, you know, just to see them on the screen, it, that's not interactive. I mean, we call the screen, we call things online interactive, but it's not interactive in the sort of real human sense of interactive. I do think we lose something. And I think, too. You know, many of us, again, in terms of our memories, the way that we operate in, in, in space, we see things um, and we remember them sort of by where they were, right? When you lose your keys, you're like, wait a minute, I remember seeing it out of this corner of my eye, or I remember it was next to this other something brown. Um, and when you don't have um, a card catalog or a file cabinet or a bookshelf full of stuff um, like you have behind me, you lose that sort of sense of the geography of where things are. 
Okay, uh, we we have just like 30 seconds before we go to audience questions. And uh, can you name one or two things quickly that uh, we've lost that you say good riddance to? Oh, gosh. Um, good riddance. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in a negative space. You got me to like a dark place where I can only remember things. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll say good riddance to the emergency breakthrough phone call, which will fly over the head of many people here probably because you have to be like in a very specific demographic space to have experienced it. But that was something where you could call the operator up and have them jump into a conversation where you were getting a busy signal and say it's an emergency, you know, so-and-so wants to talk to you. This was intended for things like roadside accidents, you know, where someone is desperately trying to get in touch with their mother to let them know their, you know, their car is totaled. Um, but it was often used uh, among high school uh, girls, at least, um, uh, to manipulate one another and to interrupt each other's conversations. And it was just it was just one of the ways in which girls tortured one another, which, you know, they now can do through TikTok. Okay. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So uh, we have some questions. One uh, comes uh, on the heels of our generational thing. Uh, this is from Jack. Uh, the book feels pretty generational. I'm 22 and my life seems fine to me. Are these just losses for older people? <laughs> um, maybe when you get older, Jack, you will recognize some of them as losses. No, look, you know, they, they might... I think that they are losses, no matter what. Um, they could be good positive losses or negative losses, um, but they are certainly things that you no longer have. Um, I, you know, I can't speak to every single thing, so I don't know enough about you or about, you know, which things um, would affect you. But I, I do think that there is a lot of nostalgia among digital natives for things that they never had. I mean, to your point about vinyl records, like you go into any urban outfitter or like teenage store now and they're selling portable um, record players because there's a surge to kind of like, okay, we've been through the, like the, you know, insane amount of choice on Spotify, but there's something super cool about having an old time record. Um, or there are apps that now um, simulate the uh, the um, need to wait for photos to develop and not to be able to tweak them digitally um, that get back to what we all had to do, which was to like drop your 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 photos off at um, a photo development shop and wait for a week for the pictures to come back. Um, so I, I do think that there is some amount of nostalgia among your generation. But look, if you're happy, you know, and you don't miss any of these things, great. Then this is just like, this is like reading about the old timey times of, of of Little House in the Prairie for you, and thinking like, thank God I don't have to go plow the potato field. Uh, this is a question from Tom. 
Do you think people in different places, like rural versus urban, first world versus third world, experience these losses differently? What about people who feel lost because they don't have access to the internet like others? Uh, I, def I definitely think that people experience it differently. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why in the, in the beginning of the book, I sort of remind people like, hey, this is who I am. This is where the way I see it. But I did try to, in my mind, kind of say, well, what if you looked at it this way? What if you looked at it this way? So that even from my own perspective, I could recognize that some of these things um, are losses at one given moment or in one situation in my life. And then at another point really might be a kind of a loss that's actually more like a gain, um, again, depending on the situation you're in. So for example, um, if, uh, you know, you're never the only one on the internet, right? And that could be positive, like, you're never the only one um, to have a child with a rare genetic uh, disorder, um, because you can find other parents in that same situation online, and you can go to chat rooms, and you can access medical information, you could see a fundraising group, and you know, I'm not the only one. Well, before the internet, you would have felt like the only one, probably, especially if you were in a rural area, if you didn't, um, you know, have direct access to other people with that same, um, you know, who were going through that same experience. So that can be very positive. And then it can also have a negative side, right? Because if you think like, wow, um, I, and now I'm going to be a little bit superficial here, but like I have the best collection of miniature glass figurines from turn of the century Venice or whatever it is. And you're like, look at my cool collection. You post on online or you Google and you go onto any website and you find, no, my collection is measly. There are many people who have far better collections than I do. Theirs are worth much more money. I thought I was so unique with this little interesting, um, you know, hobby. Uh, but actually, I'm not the only one and I'm not even pretty good, at, you know, not even particularly good at it. Um, so I do think it, it depends. In terms of access, I think that um, you know, in this country, at least, um, access has obviously improved enormously. I think it, it obviously is different, um, you know, in different places around the world. But again, I would say that there, there, there is as much loss to that as there is gain. Uh, Paula James asks, <clears throat> do you have any thoughts on cash versus crypto? Oh, gosh. My thought on crypto is this. I sat down, the New York Times did an excellent section about like, what is Bitcoin? What is crypto? What is all this stuff? And I read it religiously and absorbed it. And I understood it for about five seconds. And then it went away. And I no longer understand crypto. Um, I do have a strong feeling um, against using online paid um, apps like Venmo or Zelle, um, because I find that... You know, my attitude generally is unless the current system that I'm using is not functioning for me, there really is no reason to upgrade. Um, generally speaking, the Internet is trying to sell one on products and services to make money, even if the services and products are allegedly free. They are selling your data. They are selling something to you. They are you are the product, whatever it might be. And I find that using cash and credit cards kind of is enough for me. Um, so there's your answer. Your your very uh, non-financial, unsophisticated answer on crypto. <laughs> okay. Well, this will probably be our last question. We have just a couple minutes. Um, but Nancy wants to know: Did the process of writing the book change your mind about any of the assumptions you had when you started? 
You know, one of the interesting things about writing this book is that uh, I did start, I conceived of it and began it before the pandemic. And, um, and then <laughs> we were all under lockdown. And I would say that that um, really caused a shift in my thinking. At the beginning, I thought, oh, no, we're all so dependent on, on the internet. No one is going to want to read about like what life was like before the internet, um, because that's all we are right now. And we're really grateful to it. Um, and I think the pandemic did that for a lot of creative people and writers where they suddenly stopped whatever they were doing and like, well, who wants to read this, you know, climate change novel or that, you know, just sort of made everyone think like, what, what relevance is this? It was kind of like the 2016, you know, election where you just think like, how is this important anymore? Um, and then for me too, it changed the way in which I wrote. I used to write on the train as my commute to going into the New York Times every day. It was a set period of time that I could do my work on the book separate from my, my very busy day job. Um, and then of course I wasn't commuting anymore. So it just completely upended the way in which I was writing. I think that ultimately lockdown actually helped to solidify and clarify the reason for the existence of the book because everything was online um, for you know about six months of, of, of lockdown at least for for where I was um, and you really began to experience firsthand what you lost you know parents with children who were in kindergarten, really could see in their children's experience of going to kindergarten on Zoom, oh, you lose a lot when you're not in a physical classroom with other human beings. Oh, you lose a lot when no one can see your facial expression. Um, you lose a lot when every, you know, human beings are sort of reduced to two dimensions. Um, and we could also see the other thing that, that you could tell is that um, as the, as people came out from under lockdown, how quickly the habits of the internet took hold. So we all got into the Zoom thing, right? And then suddenly when you saw people in real life, you were like, wait a minute, I can't have like a chat on the side with someone else <laughs> while I'm talking to you because you can see me um, and there's no chat box. Uh, so so that's really what um, I think most affected my experience sort of before and after. Well, Pamela, um... I'm sorry we've run out of time. Wish we could keep going, but thanks so much for joining us today on Zoom for the equivalent. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> and yeah, thank you for being part of the Crosscut Festival and helping us get off to a good start. Uh, it was a total pleasure. Next time in real life, perhaps. That'd be great. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Pamela and Canute for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. It was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to Crosscut.com membership. 
In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.